Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Were listeners to gaze into my eyes, they would feel a tingling sensation and begin to appreciate the experience I had reading today's novel. But as this is radio, I will have to rely on more prosaic and mundane strategies when exploring Alex Landrigan's novel Crossing. So, Alex, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me. Could we say that the gaze that I've just uh, alluded to is a... a poetic conceit around which your novel turns? It is absolutely a poetic conceit. Uh, the novel, the conceit of the novel is that the characters can cross from one body into another by looking at into someone's eyes for several minutes. There was something in her gaze that had not been there previously, a kind of openness. I returned it without equivocation, keeping my eyes locked on hers until they were the only thing I saw, those bottomless wells of love and sadness. We held that gaze without moving or speaking, losing all sense of time. Gradually, I began to feel germinating in me a tingle of joy that continued to blossom, spreading over my entire being, until I felt myself starting to dissolve like an aspirin effervescing in a glass of water, as if every part of me that was solid matter was dissipating into air, only instead of becoming nothing, I was becoming something else, something rarefied and euphoric, pure existence. Now, when did this talent uh, in your novel begin? It starts back in the uh, 1790s. Well, it starts much earlier than that because the backstory of the novel is that um, is that on a fictional Pacific island, um, the indigenous people have the ability to cross from one body to another. It's an exchange of souls. So I look into you, my soul goes into your body, but your soul comes into my body. And the two characters in question back then were Alula and Ko'ahu, and that was in the in the 1790s. I'm just thinking about that time, which in many ways was a period of great discovery and the scientific age coming across these primitive islanders. Have we lost something in the age of discovery? Well, the idea... Well, uh, again, to elaborate on the back story, the, the, part of the idea of the uh, conceit is that all human beings once many millennia ago had this ability and that all it was forgotten by everyone along the way except on this one island and that um, perhaps when we look into the eyes of someone else and feel a strange sensation within us it is a vestigial remnant of that ancient ability that we have lost. Now we can actually transcend time in this novel because of that capacity Um, As I said, the novel uh, begins in the 1790s and ends in the 1940s. So through this transference, this crossing, we can change uh, into another character or take over the body. And therefore, this novel encompasses this vast period of time. But there are certain periods, if I can look at it physically, and I say that because this is a series of actually three novels, so-called novels, which all interlink, but they 
technically, physically begin, which is when the book opens, in the 1860s with Charles Baudelaire. Now, I think there's a reason for Baudelaire and why you've chosen him, is there? Well, uh, the funny thing about Baudelaire is that a lot of his poetry alludes to... Um, tropical islands and the the orient even though he didn't travel very much himself um there's there's a lot of allusions to uh things that he would have had no experience of being a parisian uh and so the to extend the conceit i thought wouldn't it be interesting if charles baudelaire was himself um one of the surviving souls from this island well you begin well the first book is called the education of a monster which is attributed to baudelaire and we end the story physically um with um the Baudelaire Society. But the last book is called The Albatross, which is particularly significant to Baudelaire. Yes, Baudelaire, one of Baudelaire's most famous poems is The Albatross. And, and in the poem, he compares poets to albatrosses in the sense that he says when they're flying up in the sky, they're like the prince of the clouds. But once you get them on, the, on board a ship, their great, their great wings render them clumsy and awkward. But it's also then this the, the albatross flew and never touched the ground for long periods of time, which is like this transcendence of a soul going from one personality to another, which is then that third section of this consecutive rolling on of people and, and transferences, That's right. so to speak. So um, you're referring to the structure of the novel, which is basically three stories that are interlinked, and you can read them front to back as three separate stories, and they're like a puzzle. Um, you get information along the way that allows you to construct the backstory. But if you prefer, you also have the option of reading the story in an altogether different sequence, a different middle, a different, a different beginning, a different middle and a different end. And um, the, the, it's exactly the same story, but the, the order in which you get the information is completely different. Can change and alter, and we'll come back to that. But another reason for Baudelaire, he had a muse, Jean Duval, who was one of these entities. And so in many ways, that accounts for the fact that Authors are inspired by other people's stories. That's right. And, and authors are not the only storytellers. And obviously, we live in an age where um, stories are, are written, uh, printed or on screen, but hu- humanity has a, this great long tradition of oral storytelling, and, and there's a lot of that in, in this novel. And another reason for Baudelaire is, in many ways... It, because you've chosen a real-life historical character, it gives the story a, a sense of credibility in a way. Um, so is it true or not is what's going through the reader's mind. And another question, you actually refer to Chris Wallace Crabb in the acknowledgements, uh, which gets back to the one, one of the opening lines in that you stole this story. What was the inspiration? So... Um I did creative writing at Melbourne Uni and uh, in first year uni and Chris Wallace Crabb was uh, our instructor and he came in one day and he said, I've just read the most remarkable story. And literally this is what he said. I remember it very well. He said, uh, almost word for word, it, it's, it, uh, it's a ship that discovers an island and on the island the people can cross from one body to another and by the end of the story, you, when the ship sails away, you don't know who's gone and who stayed behind. 
And that's all he said. But I remember I was 19 and I just remember thinking, wow, I really wish I'd had that idea. And so 25 years later, I was fishing around for, um, you know, I was still an unpublished author. I'd wanted to be a writer all this time, but I'd never found subject material that I really wanted to tackle in a serious way. And then I thought to myself, well, when the ship sails away, that's the beginning of a much bigger and, in a way, much more interesting story. The story of what happens to those souls that have crossed with the sailors and gone away. But it also raises certain concerns about, is there ever such a thing as an original storyline then? Well, we live in an age where I think there's about 100,000 novels published in, in English every year. And so I would argue there is not. Originality is no longer possible except in the original combination of pre-existing elements. Well, it's in how you tell the story as well. So then what we have, well, we also have another ethical concern because if we can actually transfer souls and our presence into another being after we leave the island, so to speak, what are the ethical and moral implications? Well, this is where I get the the opportunity to explore themes of colonisation and appropriation and theft. And um, so in many instances in the novel, we have a soul in an old person's body looking for a new, a younger person's body to enter into, and and which raises all kinds of moral considerations. And by the end of the novel, one of the characters is really struggling with that. But also, then, the notion of a young person wanting to give up their life because their existence is not what they feel is um, beneficial. Absolutely. So you have uh, instances of, for example, uh, a, a woman with a disfigured face who who wants to cross with a with a, an, a much older but more beautiful woman because she wants to have the experience of, of what what it's like to have a beautiful face. But then, yes, the question of the moral consequence of taking over somebody else's identity. And so this story, this novel, is in fact a whole series of those... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, taking over. There is a word for that. Appropriation. Uh, thank you. That sounds a, a very good word. The appropriation of other people's souls and identities. But if I can get to a more prosaic and ordinary question then, how did you, as an author, manage the change over time? Because it would have altered um, your writing style as I said, 1760s to the 1940s, but also then juggling all of these personalities and keeping the continuity. Because as we've said, there are three books in this novel and they all interlink and can be read in several ways. So this is a novel about storytelling and um, crossing is a form of storytelling. When I tell you a story, a little bit of me goes into you and stays there if it's a good story. Um, so I thought I would deal with the challenge, the structural challenges that I set myself by um, rendering a kind of homage to the stories and the storytelling traditions that were prevalent in that time. So it starts off with maritime literature and, and it goes through slave uh, literature and, and there's you know, bohemian literature and there's dandy literature and there's all these different kinds. And it finishes in 1940 with a kind of noir, romance, intrigue um, In the cemetery. That's right. But, yes, the the cemeteries are linked then to the Baudelaire Society. So so in a a very kind of elusive way, it's it's like it it traces the history of literature from from the late... 
18th century to the mid 20th century. How did you do that? <laughs> it's just my, you know, when you when you've read enough and you love it enough, it's kind of it's play, it's parody, it's 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 impersonation. Yes, and and so really, there are several levels at which this novel can be read. Absolutely, is, yeah. and you know, like there are other characters in it. Like one big character is Walter Benjamin, for example, and I and I love the story of, of the the final days and weeks of Walter Benjamin's life. But I and I and I know that there are people out there who really uh, engage with his ideas. So I wanted the book to be very readable for people who had no idea who Baudelaire and Benjamin were, as well as for people who are deeply engaged with the, those those writers' works. And so, you know, you choose your level that you read it on. Well, this is what I had to do. I mean, I then started looking up Baudelaire and, uh, because a poet of which I'd heard but knew very little about. And it seems to link. But also something going through my mind, Baudelaire was syphilitic. Was he crazy? Is there an element of craziness to this conceit and, that you put and, forward? And is there an element of craziness in stories themselves? Yes. Indeed. Look, Alex, we're going to have to finish the interview there, unfortunately. But uh, a very uh, fascinating... You've, you've posed me a challenge or two in terms of how best to move through this story. The novel is simply entitled Crossings, or if we looked at it uh, more technically, there are three novels there, The Education of a Monster, City of Ghosts, Tales of the Albatross, which all interlink. The author is Alex Landrigan, and it's from Pan Macmillan. So, Alex, thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you. Well, we're going to go from exchanging of souls to maybe exchanging of minds. We all do screen time in one way or another, and K.H. Kenobi has taken screen time reality a few steps into the future with Mind Cull. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, you've got Isla. She's 16-year-old. She has what everybody else has. She's got a headset and a wrist gem. What can she do with these? Okay, so the headset has earbuds and eye lenses and um, she can use those to see and hear things that aren't actually present. Um, This is a society um, in the future, um, in the not-too-distant future that I'm imagining and Isla can perceive an enhanced view of reality which sort of published by local councils and all of those things if you don't want to have to look at the current landscape if it's not that pleasing then they they can play something a bit more interesting a bit more beautiful that you can see and hear she can contact friends via her headset um, so they appear like a hologram and I've called those v calls so she can actually um, sort of summon up a friend people everyone likes to put their current perceptions sort of send them out publicly to at least to their friends so they kind of broadcast the v feed of what they're seeing and hearing a lot of the time Mm -hmm. Uh, they can choose whether or not they'd like to but um at any one time isla can tune into various hundreds of friends that she's linked to and see what they're seeing and hear what they're hearing so there's lots of interesting things she can do but she has become something of a celebrity by posting what I've called v-clips which are kind of like a future version of a YouTube video which she actually plans and scripts and then puts out publicly not just to her friends and she's become these have become very popular well she's at a school for talented kids and she's 
shortlisted for a worldwide competition. What's this going to give her? Okay, so the competition is called The Face of Pearl. And Pearl is a big global tech company. And being the face of Pearl means to star in their marketing campaign. And Pearl are about to introduce something that um, a lot of people are very excited about, which is a, a new virtual reality skin suit, that, a whole body suit that people put on. Um, and it's, got a, it's meant to be a big advance on what's existing in the market now. So she's shortlisted to be the person that kind of stars in their advertising. Well, she's not without cyberbullying because she's her jealous friends at school. Friends? Mm. But she does have a good friend at school and that's Mylou. But Mylou has another interest as well. Ah, uh, yes. So May's involved with a group of people we hear about as the activists and she's passionate about social justice. She's she she's passionate about change and Isla she Isla this this sort of part of May's life is separate from Isla. She doesn't really know that much about it, but she knows that May is involved with these people who are trying to challenge the system and I suppose expose oppression. Now um, May's friends, these activist friends, have got the power to disenable or to jam their headsets why would they need to do that as the um, book progresses we become aware that not only can the headsets be used for your entertainment and communication needs but they also um, provide a way in for outside external Mm. forces to perhaps monitor what you're seeing and hearing so it's not a society where there's much privacy almost everything you do will be recorded by someone else's headset and streamed by them possibly and or there may be ways in which law enforcement government groups might be able to actually access what you are seeing and hearing because it's illegal to travel anywhere without them on so there's this supervision but you know we know the activists can jam but there's People, a group of people who have paid research scientists also to get this ability to jam the wealthy. <laughs> right, yeah, that's right. So, the um, companies. sorry. Yeah, and anyway, so May and Isla have worked out themselves how to do this headset deactive system. So it's it's a clever thing. They have visuals or something going on where they can turn it on because this is what we just take for granted. They cannot have a normal, non-recordable conversation. It's You just sort of think, oh, my goodness, that's terrible. Uh, I like that Catherine Kenobi has given us a quote from Star Wars. The Empire underestimates the Rebel Alliance. So we have to work out in this book just who the goodies and the baddies are. And that's, well, that's when we get, we are introduced to I-L-E-O. Who are they? Um, So I-L-E-O stands for International Law Enforcement Organisation. And they... They are kind of a a, um, shadowy – so they're international, Mm. so they um, work across borders and um, we're introduced to them in the context of them um, trying to um, prevent terrorist attacks. Um, So that's what they're um, doing, but um, they're – 
Uh, they have some uh, powers given to them in the pursuit of those ends that are uh, would be somewhat troubling, I think, to a lot of people. <laughs> like a distorter. Yes. So this is a your your intervent your imagination. So explain to us what a distorter does. Okay. So this is a world where everyone is used to um, perceiving things through virtual reality, um, and. It, to a lot of people in this context, it seems fair enough if law enforcement is able to use distortions in perceptions to actually extract the truth from people. So um, when um, Ilio has the power, uh, sorry, I-L-E-O, I've been calling them Ilio in my mind, have the power when they interview someone to um, employ a distorter and the distorter actually um, creates perceptions uh, that are a bit like audio and visual hallucinations and I've sort of drawn on my background in cognitive psychology to imagine what would happen if your whole mind is taken up with these untrue perceptions and there is evidence that lying actually takes up a lot more um, cognitive effort than telling the truth. So my idea is that they've somehow developed this system to um, force people to tell the truth by putting them through this um, situation where they're perceiving things that aren't actually present. So why do they want to enlist Isla's help? Okay, so Isla has been um, shortlisted in this um, international, by this international global tech company. And the company is producing these skin suits that everybody wants a piece of and everybody wants to know about. And Ilio expresses some concerns about the purposes to which these skin suits are going to be used. And so they are actually wanting and no one has access to them except the shortlistees are invited to a mansion in England to go and try out these um, prototypes before they're released onto the market. So the shortlistees will be the very first people to have access to these new skin suits. Ilio, I-L-E-O, also know something about Alice own past that they use to manipulate her to um, to help them to do some, uh, super, some undercover super surveillance on these swimsuits. Her mother died and she seems to be getting help from her mother's best friend. But what happened to her father? Um, well, the kind of um, situation with her father unfolds throughout the book, so I don't know if I should tell you too much about him. But um, Can I do a quote? Yep. This is from page 108. Due to your father's reliance on virtual reality to escape from the trauma of your mother's sudden illness, he has acquired an, an entitative illusion disorder. Now, what's another, what's another word for this big lot of words? Okay, so that was uh, um, a doctor talking to um, her. And um, there's a group of people... In- in this um, future society who have been kind of left behind by all these developments. So um, they have um, become overly dependent or... Um, addicted. Addicted in some way the to reality. the virtual reality um, world. And so reality for them has faded. There's a lot of them. Yes. <laughs> it's quite a common problem. I- I've tried to... Um, I've tried to model that on in the real world when people have disorders, there's a whole range 
of symptoms and a whole mm. range of ways in which the disorder manifests itself. So this particular disorder, you know, some people are sort of in society, but others are actually unable to cope with society at all because they've kind of, um, they're experiencing auditory and visual hallucinations um, and they don't require a headset anymore mm-hmm. to see things that aren't there and to hear things that aren't there. And they are... Um, they kind of represent a group of people that are sort of mistreated or um, uh, are suffering in this new world. Discordance, yes. And the care for them takes up a lot of time and, and money and we question the money and the profit motive behind it. Okay, so... Um, And how could they possibly be used in the future? Mm. Now, what is mind occupation and how could big business use it? There you go. Okay, so oh, I, I don't think I can go into that too much, Dan, because well, I might be giving a, away too many spoilers. There's a big business called Kin that's full of rich influentials who believe, a quote from the book, human achievements are stunted by our reliance on our bodies. So, you know, these skin suits that's taking the body, the the suits taking over. Look, when it all seems too much to cope for a 16-year-old to cope with, there's a bit of a laugh through it, which I quite enjoyed. Now, this um, Isla, she's got a good appetite, so we know what she eats. Yes, yeah, she's often quite hungry. She's got, you know, we, we all have Siri, but she has her own personal assistant, Tina, who turns up as a hologram in some really weird and wonderful clothing. Yes, Trina's great fun, yes. And there's a bit of a romance with one of the other shortlisted winners, Hugo. Mm. So Isla has been through a lot of counselling because of her mother's death and she also disallows any of this help. And I'm thinking, you know, is this a good thing to actually put into a book about her techniques on how to do this? Oh, yeah. So um, what I was really keen to get across with Isla is that at the start of the book, she's quite mistrustful and in many ways, very disconnected. She has a couple of close relationships. But even those, there's some difficulty and barriers that she puts up. So she's quite an isolated person and quite socially anxious as well. And so I wanted her to go on the, a journey in the book. She does. Yes, she- and, and, to, and, to, and to progress in that way. So, Catherine Kenobi, is it your job as a, co- a cognitive scientist or having your own ju- children that's allowed you to give this generational future? (laughs) That's a great question. I think it's a combination of the two. Yeah, um, my kids are teenagers and they're living in a world where um, technology can disguise reality, can be used as an escape from reality, can be used to present different versions of reality and it's a struggle to be a teenager and find your own identity and develop authentic relations in that context. And so I, I noticed that as a psychologist but I also experience that as a mum. <laughs> so will virtual reality be there just for entertainment or will it take over our lives? You'll have to read Catherine Kenobi's Mindkill. Mindkill is written by K.H. Kenobi, published by Ford Street. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you.